Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Hi, and welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, your host, Michaela Thomas. Today, I'm going to have a conversation with a fellow psychologist, and we're going to have a lot of thoughts around the link between your mind and your body. And that's no wonder because Sula has experience of being actually quite well versed with health complaints herself and also having guided lots of people to help them make sense of the health conditions they're experiencing. You will learn a lot about the links between what happens in your mind and what happens in your body and how that goes back and forth. So the more stressed out you are, the more your body might manifest symptoms of that and the more though you notice those symptoms, the more stressed out you might become of them. So we're going to cover a few different conditions today, but that's not the end of Sula's expertise. She knows a lot more that we didn't have a chance to cover today. And the extra exciting thing about having her on the podcast is that Sula is the latest recruit to my psychology company, The Thomas Connection. So she's going to come and work for us, not just to work with health conditions, but also with common mental health problems like anxiety, stress and depression. So stay tuned till the end because she has such a good permission to give you at the very end of this episode. So let's think a little bit more about who I've actually hired because she's a fantastic person and I've also agreed already that she passes the FICA test which means FICA means basically like 11 C's or tea time in Swedish and that means that she's a lovely person to have a chat with. You can have a coffee break with her and I feel very positive about having her on board our team. So let's think about who Sula really is. Dr. Sula Wingasson works in the NHS as a health psychologist and cognitive behavioral therapist. So she works with people with long-term health conditions and common mental health problems. Sula completed her health psychology doctoral training and PhD in psychological medicine at King's College London, publishing research papers on the role of psychological factors in irritable bowel syndrome. She has collaborated in the design, development and assessment of psychological interventions for a range of physical health conditions, including IBS, inflammatory bowel disease, multiple sclerosis and painful bladder syndrome. Approaches that she works with includes CBT or cognitive behavioural therapy, mindfulness and compassion-focused therapy. Sula has actually experienced the impact of persistent bladder and pelvic symptoms herself, so she is a passionate advocate for women's health. She's currently pursuing research focusing on the role of psychological and social factors in pelvic health and developing health psychology approaches for this. And in this episode, we also link this specifically with perfectionism, thinking about how having very high standards for yourself can impact negatively on any health condition you might have as well, and when the body just says no. So on with the show and time to introduce my guest. So after that amazing introduction, I'm very, very pleased to have you here, Sula. So tell me a little bit more about yourself. Like I often do on this podcast, I ask people to tell me a little bit about their story, a little bit about why you do what you do, a little bit about what a health psychologist is, and a little bit about the the journey you've had into that interest in health psychology. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's lovely to be um, talking with you. I guess my journey into health psychology came from my own personal experience with ongoing health conditions, which happened just after I finished my psychology undergrad degree. I went into a new job, which I was excited about to begin with, but it was in marketing. And I always knew really that I wanted to work in psychology, but you get told how competitive it is. And I'd struggled to find clinical experience. So it seemed like a good way in the interim, at least to develop some skills and get some money. But unfortunately, I think at that time, it was just such a huge time of transition. So everybody left my university town in Leeds. I was working in a new career in a small business. It was a different kind of culture to what I'd been used to. And I think, I mean, I'd always been prone to getting urinary tract infections now and again, but they'd seem to pass 
uh, after getting antibiotics or sometimes just the sachet through enough. But this uh, bout of infections kept coming back and then it led to having to go to different specialists. I got different diagnoses of E. coli-based UTIs, then it was urethritis, according to a different doctor, and then the test started coming back negative. There wasn't any infection, but I was still getting all of these infections. And it just led me down a path of not really knowing what's going on with my body and having these really intrusive symptoms that was impacting on every aspect of my life. It was making me not want to socialize. You know, sometimes it just meant that I wasn't able to do actual things, you know, whether it was socializing or whether it was just getting out of bed or leaving the toilet because I felt such an urgent need to um, pass urine. And obviously that was having an impact on my relationship too. Although my partner, who's still my partner, was very supportive. We were just in a new relationship. So it was incredibly stressful. And then I was having to take time off work and they weren't so supportive. So it was just an incredible period of stress and ill health and there became this vicious cycle that I often see now when I'm working with clients and in the research but I just wasn't sure how to get myself out of it because everything was so overwhelming and um, I, I became really depressed and then I started getting migraines I think from the stress and yeah it was a real difficult time and fortunately I suppose for me my dad's a psychiatrist who was doing a master's at the time in mindfulness and he suggested to me that I should use mindfulness to help which Initially, I was quite resistant to, as I think actually a, a lot of people are when they've got physical health conditions, because it doesn't necessarily make sense. But even more fortunately, his partner was a clinical psychologist working with chronic pain. And she gave me an explanation that really resonated about, you know, the relationship between stress and the body and symptoms and how we perceive them and how that can then feed into this sensitization and just keep these things going on uh, and th and that really sold me on the idea of using mindfulness to help with that and to try and reverse that cycle and I found it to be really really helpful and not a quick fix by any means and there was still a lot of kind of medical avenues I went down at the same time but it made a huge difference to just be able to manage my symptoms manage the stress coming from it and then eventually be symptom free, thankfully, um, and not have any of those issues anymore. And I guess after, yeah, about nine months, I think of going on this journey of recovery, I realized that, you know, one thing that was definitely contributing to my stress was working in this environment that I wasn't committed to and was very stressful and not so supportive. And also that I was really interested in health psychology. I, I, I had been prior to my own experience, but especially now, so that led me down the route of health psychology, really. And I ended up doing a master's at King's College London and then carried on my training ever since, really. That's really fascinating, then, Sula, of how there's been such a clear link for you between your body and your mind. And it's going in both directions, like what was mm. going on for you physically in your body led to, understandably so, feeling low or feeling anxious about how it's impacting on you. And then the more stressed you felt, then the more fed back into the body, giving you migraines as well. And I think that that mind-body interaction is obviously why I invited you on today and why we call this episode Connecting With Your Body because I think that's so important of understanding the role that psychology can play when it comes to health conditions. And that's what I wanted to kind of pick your brains on a little bit more today because having worked with you know medically unexplained symptoms before myself or helped support people who have health conditions, and that's something what you are obviously very specialized in of how hard it can be to bring in psychology for someone who has physical health complaints can be yeah. kind of getting that phrase of but what are you what are you talking about that you know it's not all in my head I'm, I'm feeling these symptoms so how can health psychology really help people forward when they have medical or health complaints I think often because of people's journeys in the health system and with their health unfortunately particularly for women they get this message of you're being a hypochondriac it's not as bad as you think it is or you say it is this isn't an actual thing because we can't find anything and that's particularly so as you say in these medically unexplained symptoms mm. which you know I think that that title for them in them, themselves is problematic patients were asked what they would like to be what they would like the term to be instead and I think they said persistent physical symptoms I guess because you know, inherent in that medically unexplained symptoms is, <laughs> I think, that whole process of it is all in your head. Um, yeah, there's a, mu there's a much kind of bigger connection between 
feeling invalidated with that title, I think. But um, I think so the, the first answer really is about acknowledging the journey that these clients have been through, the fact that they've been from pillar to post usually. I mean, I've never still seen somebody that's had a really straightforward, intuitive journey where they've been helped and validated by their healthcare professionals and been given definitive options for what can happen next. There's always been so much uncertainty. So I think my sessions usually start off with eliciting that beyond the assessment phase and asking more about that journey and how that made them feel and particular parts of that journey that were difficult and where they felt most invalidated and dismissed. Because I think that does play into you know, that messaging of it's all in your head, which then makes you doubt your own experience, which is highly distressing. But it also creates this confusion with your relationship with your own body. What is going on? Have I got control over this? Is this all my fault? And of course, that creates more stress. Um, and it, it, it creates more problems. So I think if, if somebody is open to receiving some kind of psychological input, providing plenty of validation up front and a big part of that as well is explaining the role of how psychology can be helpful and the place that I always start with that just in a slimmed down version to begin with is just explaining the biopsychosocial perspective of health so the fact that yes there's a huge biological or physiological component you know these are the things that we can observe really clearly in medical exams for example so that might be in increased inflammation or there might be tissue damage or nerves you know misfiring or whatever it might be but whatever the physical health condition there's always a, a psychological impact as well so whether it's a medically unexplained illness or whether it's a you know an organic structural damage illness so we can draw the parallel of IBS which is quote-unquote medically unexplained we can't necessarily see that there's anything going on but the symptoms are very much there versus inflammatory bowel disease where there is structural tissue damage and the yeah the condition of the bowels can degenerate substantially and resulting in sections of the bowel having to be removed so in both there's a psychological impact and and role right whether that's just because of the symptoms you're experiencing but usually it's much wider than that you know how we think about the illness uh, we use that model in health psychology of the common sense model, it's called, which is all about our illness representations, how we see the illness course running out, if we think it's going to be chronic, if it's going to last forever, what we see the consequences to be, how much control we perceive we have. And um, yeah, all of these kind of aspects inform how accepting we are of the illness or how much it causes us distress, how much it impacts on our, our own identity. Um, so there's always going to be a huge psychological impact and then also the social you know impact which is how we're able to negotiate relationships if our roles have changed so if we used to be the breadwinner for example maybe now we no longer can be because we can't work because of the status of our health or maybe you know there's other aspects of the social situation so maybe there's a huge stigma around the particular symptoms that you're having or um how society views you and how you're managing your illness so all of these kind of factors combine to then cluster at the center um we've got our overall illness experience so if somebody if we take one aspect of each of these spheres of the biopsychosocial model if somebody is you know in a, a situation where their finances have been impacted and also their kind of role and identity within their family structures changed we can take those as two key examples of the the social impact and then if they're also thinking that they're a failure then because they've got these symptoms and they're not managing better that then impacts uh, further that that social experience and then how that impacts our physical experience obviously you know on one hand we were talking about the, the bi-directionality so the symptoms are informing these things but these things are also feeding back into the the illness experience so the social aspect the psychological aspect causes more stress and we know stress is associated with all kinds of physiological changes in our body from increased inflammation reduced immune functioning you know increased just muscle tension so all of these things are likely to impact whatever the health condition is so i think explaining that biopsychosocial model to give a bit of context up front can help people make that mind-body connection and see why tackling those psychological and social aspects can actually help the, the physical health experience. 
That's really powerful to see how interlinked it all is, that mm. actually how it sort of Im- impacts on one another. And that's where I guess this sort of mind-body connection, knowing it's bi-directional, it goes in both ways. And mm. and I guess as a health psychologist, it must be very, very interesting to sit with people who's, who actually haven't considered psychology as a part of that before. And, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the kind of the links between health and psychological well-being so far, but you mentioned gut health there as well. You kind of talked about the difference in, say, IBS as a presentation and IBD or in, uh, inflammatory bowel disease mm. and how in the one you can see it more clearly with kind of almost like quote unquote physical proof. Mm. I'm wondering, you know, is this easier for, for clients to, for patients, you know, to accept a condition where there is also physical proof? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it does massively vary. I think based on loads of different factors, part of me thinks just anecdotally, yes, it is. Because if there is physical proof, as it were, or or what's considered physical proof, you know, then at least there are care pathway structures. And that means that, you know, from diagnosis, that there's much clearer trajectory of what's going to happen. And so if we can draw that parallel again between IBS and IBD as a, a, a nice contrast there, if you've got IBD, whether it's Crohn's or colitis, um, falls under the umbrella of inflammatory bowel disease, you'll get regular tests to see kind of the status of your bowel condition. When you go to your GP, they'll run blood tests and things to see if anything's changed, if you need further investigation. If you do, you get stepped up to a specific professional assigned to to that field um, with all the relevant knowledge. And then Often as well, people with IBD get a, an IBD nurse who they can ask questions to, seek advice about medications. So there's there's a lot more clarity. I mean, I'm saying that. I know that lots of people with IBD don't have that extent of support all of the time. But generally, there are structures in place to, to mean that's more available. As opposed to when you've got IBS and you keep getting these symptoms and they run the test, but nothing comes back. So you usually go through years really of of trying to find out what it is. And sometimes you don't get tests run. So there's always this doubt in your mind of maybe it's something serious. Maybe it's, maybe it is inflammatory bowel disease. Maybe it is bowel cancer. Maybe it's, you know, something else entirely. Um, and all that uncertainty really uh, increases anxiety, which we know has a massive impact on on our bowels. So that can intensify the, intensify the symptoms even further. Absolutely. The more The more you worry about what's going on in your gut, the worse yeah. it gets. I think that's something that I think about a lot with someone who obviously specializes in anxiety. You see a lot of people who also then come with physical health complaints as well, mm-hmm. that, you know, it's a kind of almost a manifestation in their body. So what's going on in their minds? And, and you know, I've talked about that before around how, you know, those links around gut health and, and psychological well-being. I wonder if you can say a little bit around how living sort of a hectic life with high standards and lots of stress, you know, mm-hmm. just maybe high performing people who have high standards. Can you tell the listeners a bit about the kind of link between gut issues and, and the brain in that way? Like maybe if there's a link between gut-brain axis disorder or IBS and, and say, per- perfectionism or anxiety, you know, what kind of, what links are there between what's happening in our minds of how we feel mm. and what's happening in our gut? I actually looked at the research of whether there's much of a correlation between irritable bowel syndrome and perfectionism. Because that's something that is really clear just anecdotally and from, you know, trials that I've been involved with. So a lot of people with high expectations and what I would describe as perfectionism, although we didn't take measures in the particular trials that I worked on. But there's surprisingly little. So I, I think there needs to be research to really <laughs> to, to um, establish that. But definitely anecdotally, from my experience working with people with irritable bowel syndrome, they tend to have a lot of high standards and expectations of themselves and the model of irritable bowel syndrome that uh, we used in the assessing cognitive therapy in uh, irritable bowel syndrome trial and the the kind of protocol one of the key things is this boom bust behavior one of the key maintaining factors Um, and I think that's very much driven by high standards and expectations of oneself so for example it's not acceptable to have reduced your workload or reduced your output because you've been ill with bowel symptoms. So, you know, that inevitably means then that you've got to catch up and really push yourself hard in the period where you're not having as much bowel symptoms. And then this creates this boom bust pattern because you push yourself too hard, 
And then we see that you crash and either you're fatigued or maybe, you know, bowel symptoms crop up again because you've put an incredible amount of pressure on yourself. And you mentioned about the brain gut axis and irritable bowel syndrome is understood to be a disorder of that brain gut axis. So we know that there's, you know, multiple mechanisms of how the brain and the gut are interacting. So we've got our central nervous system, so our brain and our spinal cord, which you know, spreads far and wide across the body, um, everything from, you know, regulating breathing and heart function to giving us sensory input and understanding sensations and whatnot. But we've also got our enteric nervous system, which is called the second brain. It exists in the lining of our gut and it's made up of, I think, 100 million neurons. And 90% of those neurons are dedicated to send messages up to the brain So unlike any other organ or organ system in the body, it can act independently from the brain. So that means that we get a lot of incoming messages from our gut quite independently without brain input, if that makes sense. So, for example, if you were to get a sensation in your gut because of maybe some food that didn't agree with you or maybe, you know, an infection or something that sends messages back up to the gut and uh, back up to the brain rather and then we've got this whole host of reactions of of, you know what should happen you know and that can affect how our immune system is functioning it can affect how you know we feel physically whether that's our behavior we might withdraw we might become hypervigilant you know we might get extra pain sensations so there's this two-way interaction that kind of goes on and on but our guts are very sensitive to not just, you know, what's going on physically in the gut, but I, I think as well, it's picked up in language when we say I, I had a feeling in my gut or I butterflies in my stomach. So when you get that kind of anxiety or whatever it might be, you feel like something physically in your stomach. There's definitely a, a real close communication, which we're only just starting to, to really um, unpick the mechanisms behind that. It's really fascinating. I guess I'm getting a million questions of where I would want to follow this up with, but I'm aware of the time and aware of sort of the questions I sent to you beforehand, and none of them have said anything about how we find our gut intuition. But now I just want to ask about that. Is there, is there any sort of physical base to gut intuition? You know, kind of say, trust your gut and you know, I feel it in my gut. Yeah. Is that is there any physical base for that? What, what is that about? Yeah, it's interesting. I actually don't know the 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 answer to that but I, I my thoughts are based on kind of my understanding of of how the two work together is you know we, we could understand that in terms of our stress response right so when we clock something as potentially threatening we get this automatic stress response and that is one of the key messages to our gut so for example if I get an iffy feeling about something there'll be something going off in my brain that you know alerts this stress response that sends down these uh, stress hormones quite instantaneously and then we might get a real quick reaction from our stomach and you can see that you know just for example anecdotally when you're going to give a presentation or if you're I don't know doing something that you find quite uh, stress inducing you get that instant kind of feeling in your stomach. So it can be understood in the same way. We've got this instant stress response and then that is communicated to the gut. It can change either how our gut's functioning, so whether it uh, speeds it up, so that urgency of wanting to go to the toilet, but it can also inhibit our, our gut functioning so that it's kind of put on pause. And again, we can understand that in terms of the fight or flight response. So if we need <laughs> to conserve our energy to fight, then our bowels will shut down. And that's where we might get, you know, when it, stress becomes chronic, we get chronic constipation, for example. But equally, if we need to get away quickly, evolutionarily, it's beneficial to be lighter on your feet. And especially if food's nearing the end of our um, digestive process, we might quickly need to go and pass a, a stool then. So we can have, you know, differential effects depending on on yeah, various different things. But um, there's definitely that that kind of intuitive thing that happens when we get an iffy feeling we might not have cognitively processed but somewhere we've had an alarm system go off and then that quickly communicates to the to the gut so if you have to kind of urgently go to the toilet before every time you have a meeting with your boss then there's a it's <laughs> a clue there that maybe that working relationship is is causing stress for you yeah. and uh, that's really interesting i knew we kind of had to get on to poo at one point or another it's just <laughs> inevitable and in, in your work i suppose exactly. and I, I find that really fascinating and it sounds like there's there's an area of research even where, you know, where you can collaborate between sort of the physical health and the psychological health, thinking about, for instance, 
research on perfectionism and chronic mm. pain. And I was been a little bit done around that and research around, say, IBS and perfectionism. But I guess also we, we know that actually lack of kindness for yourself, if mm. you're not treating yourself well, doesn't really matter so much if it's a physical condition or, or a psychological condition. If you're treating yourself unkindly, it's not going to help your condition. So be it a broken bone or, um, uh, or depression, you know, that's what I meant about it's more validating in some ways to have a physical thing to show up. Like, look, here's my arm in a cast, very different to I'm really struggling with my mood. So that's where I think it's so important to have people like you supporting the link there between these two fields where we don't reduce people down to just what happens in their body or just what happens in their mind, but actually the link between the two. Yeah, absolutely. You've given me lots of kind of ideas there of what, what this, how this can manifest itself in the body when maybe someone is high striving or is very stressed out and kind of doesn't slow down their pace but gets into these cycles. The boom or bust is obviously very common in, in chronic pain, but something that I do see in very all or nothing thinking around perfectionism as well in people's attitude towards their work that either I just keep going, keep going, keep going, and then I'll relax when I'm holiday. And it's mm-hmm. that inevitably people then get ill. Always. I hear the same story. I took one week off and I'm punished for it because I've, I've just got the, the worst flu or cold or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is that something to do with our immune system as well and the stress response, the kind of the, the, the threat we are under when we're constantly overworking and then when we relax, the body's then more susceptible to, to illnesses? Is that something you know anything about? Well, I was just listening to an interesting podcast um, with Jenna Macchione and she she's an immunologist and she was talking about how we often forget that stress can also be helpful and a positive thing as well in our body and, you know, psychologically as well. So, I mean, I, me personally, I'm someone that <laughs> only work, I mean, I work my best when I've got a, um, a deadline impending and then I can <laughs> do my best work as opposed to, you know, that stress not being there. So, you know, we can think about stress as being a, a positive thing and, you know, and a motivating thing. And part of that is, you know, the hormonal response. And, um, you know, we know that adrenaline can power us through things, it can make us, you know, it can prevent us from feeling pain, it can, you know, push us through tiredness, etc, etc. And I suppose then, if we're (laughs) calling on that stress response, quite frequently, in order to push through and engage in that kind of yeah <laughs> I guess it is unkind behavior to ourselves just relentlessly pushing then the knock-on effect is inevitably when the adrenaline goes that's when we for example would feel pain again but that's when there's been this imbalance in our whole homeostasis so something's got to give and and for sure you know that's where we start to see the effects of having pushed ourselves and I think pain's a nice example if you're if you are a runner and you're using the adrenaline to push through, you don't feel the pain in your legs necessarily. And then when you finish that journey and the adrenaline's gone, then you start to feel all of the effects of having pushed so hard. We can think of that as applying to all the different mechanisms of our, yeah, our immune system and our central nervous system. We, we push through and then we've depleted our bodily kind of resources. And yeah, I mean, that is such a common thing, isn't it? As soon as it comes to Christmas, <laughs> we're all full of colds and I'm sure it's not just because that's the time for <laughs> for these viral diseases I think it is because we work so hard to just push through mm. I guess it's also thinking about the difference between the you know the occasional spike of stress where we kind of have a little peak of like you're saying that time of year when we're got a deadline I mean I can for sure put my hand up for that happening when it's time to do my taxes every year <laughs> I think I should have done this earlier and then it's last few weeks last few days I should say if I'm really honest (laughs) then I think I'll have to work through my accounts and I guess that gets me motivated to get done with it whereas I could have started three months earlier the data is there and I could have dealt with it but nobody does you know it's it's a human condition I think that we procrastinate and then put things off until there's a little bit of urgency or um, that's kind of a stress deadline there so I guess how is that different to, you know, the the occasional spikes? I, I don't want people to to listen and think that if I've ever sort of pushed myself a little bit or if I ever was stressed about something, my body is then going to collapse. Mm. That is actually you, what you're talking about is more about the consistency of of how 
how there's consistent stress responses there. Like if you never get your sense of recovery, never coming down again, mm. that can be more detrimental for the body. Is that sort of how you mean? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we kind of crudely separate out our understanding of stress as acute stress and chronic stress. And acute mm. stress, you know, is, is those spikes in anxiety we get, you know, for example, with those deadlines or if we're going to give a presentation or, you know, if something goes wrong, that wasn't foreseen or you know even if it was foreseen but chronic stress is where we've got this kind of repeated hit of stress you know quite consistently so that could be you know you've got deadline after deadline after deadline so you, you get through one week finishing one deadline and then you've got the weekend and then oh my gosh there's another deadline um so you are getting that small bit of re- reprieve but then after that you're getting your huge spike of stress for quite a, you know consistent while and then that goes away and then you've got that huge spike again. So we can think about it in that kind of way, that kind of consistency, a repeated hits type way. Um, but it also can be where the stress is just ever present and it doesn't really go away. So it might not be a deadline, for example. It could just be that background factors. I mean, this pandemic's a good... <laughs> it's pretty chronic stress right <laughs> yeah, there, isn't it? Chronic stress, yeah. Although, yeah. you know, we shouldn't all worry about ourselves too much because we have got incredible ways to cope with these things. But you know, if there are things that are just, you know, going on consistently and causing this base level stress, and then we've got, you know, additional things that are ever present, we've only got so much capacity to deal with that and kind of cope with that. And then, and then it has a knockover effect, really. Mm. And I guess that's the social social part of the Mm. biopsychosocial model as well. If you have chronic stress in your home environment, like maybe distress in your relationship or, you know, a a sick child or whatever it might be that's causing you lots of of distress or long-term threat of redundancy at work. All of these things that are just life stresses for for all of us can be really challenging. And I guess if we approach these things that naturally would be difficult, if we approach them with also extra high standards for how we should be, putting pressure on ourselves to be perfect or Mm. you know trying our very best to never make mistakes or never kind of fail with anything then I guess that stress would then be much more extreme wouldn't it so I wonder kind of running things off towards the kind of where we started you mentioned obviously being a mindfulness practitioner I wonder how can mindfulness then help us connect more with our bodies and Mm. and something that comes up for me a lot when I talk about mindfulness with my clients is that I get this question of, so what if we find it really unpleasant when we first slow down and we notice things, notice things in the body? Can it make us more anxious? Yeah, absolutely. I think mindfulness, you know, the research shows us that it's a really good way of physically calming the, the autonomic stress response. So reducing the heart rate, reducing blood pressure, all the, the usual markers that we would look to for, for our stress response, you know, kicking off and, and becoming deregulated. So using mindfulness can be really effective for that but I I also you know make huge disclaimers about using mindfulness because I think there's so many misconceptions and I think one of the things is that when you're using mindfulness you are sitting with your experience and if your experience is stressful uh, particularly if your you know your physical condition causes you stress then that's not going to be an easy thing to do and it is likely to increase um, discomfort and stress as you become more aware and that's where the kind of consistency of practice but also getting guidance from somebody that can help uh, yeah facilitate your your mindfulness practice and and help you develop you know mindful awareness and um, attitudes of compassion to that experience so that it doesn't kind of sustain as discomfort all the time and I think people can often get lost you know with things like uh, headspace and apps where it's not a particular program necessarily and there's no facilitation we can get lost on threads of I should be clearing my thoughts or I should be enjoying this or I should come out feeling much more enlightened which is is not necessarily realistic even for consistent practitioners there's still going to be levels of discomfort Mm -hmm. I suppose what I always remind people is that you know the, the key components of mindfulness is yes that present moment awareness which can be where the, the discomfort comes in, but also the, the qualities of compassion. So being kind and gentle with yourself to whatever you're experiencing, because often actually when we feel our heart racing and that feels anxiety provoking, we also get this extra narrative then of why aren't I enjoying this? What's going wrong? Um, I should be doing better, whatever else, whatever else. And that then obviously feeds into that 
difficult experience and we're lost then in a cycle of experience and criticism and it's really hard to step out of that stream so if we keep revisiting that that intention to to be kind to our experience as well as best we can and build on that I think that helps when when discomfort does come up that sounds really powerful because I guess it's that sense of meeting yourself where you're at. If you do have a, a health condition that would give you sensations, you know, like in your oh, gut, gut or chronic pain or wherever it might be, mm-hmm. if you're then acutely feeling it as you're sitting there, that as actually meeting yourself where you're at with being kind about what you find is sometimes I, a phrase I use that actually if you're then noticing those symptoms, if we then get really hooked by thoughts around should, you know, should mm-hmm. not feel this way, should be experiencing this. And I, I guess... I can come when we when we're looking at the hype around mindfulness today, and I am a mindfulness practitioner myself, but I often talk about that with high striving people who are expecting this sort of magical cure, this panacea of now mag- mindfulness is going to make me feel really calm, switched off and at ease with life. Mm-hmm. And that can be a nice bonus effect for some, for some of the time, but not, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you feel more wound up because you've realized that there was stuff that you hadn't really considered because you were too busy to to really notice and you're distracting yourself or numbing yourself away from it. So that's really powerful that you talking about that as an understanding that needs to be put in place before people with physical health conditions actually go into mindfulness in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. So what about yourself then, Sula? Do you use mindfulness as a way to pause and switch off in your own life? Um, is that a way for you to kind of kind of step back from the the busyness the achievement thinking about everything you've done so far in your career does that help you pause or is there anything else that you do instead yeah I mean I do use mindfulness you know I I can definitely relate to um the stop starting of practice uh and it's it's without fail I've noticed my patterns is when things are more difficult (laughs) I'm less inclined to want to do mindfulness um but I have I have noticed that and I think what I've I've done I I like what you said kind of meeting yourself where you are is rather than expect myself to have a really still practice for a good you know 20-30 minutes I kind of negotiate with myself okay we're just going to do five minutes and you know we're going to do a practice that feels easier so I, I tend to find like mindfulness of sounds a good practice when my mind's so so busy and it's much more anchoring than asking myself to sit with my breath on its own for example and so I try and practice that flexibility but also just mindful um, moments so I can combine that mindful awareness with something else that's going to give me more of a reinforcing experience while still you know practicing mindfulness so going out for a walk for example and really listening to the crunch of my feet and what I'm seeing and noticing when thoughts come in, not pushing them away, but then just coming back to being where I am. And I think that negotiation allows me to practice more consistently than I have previously, because, you know, it's funny how those standards and expectations come in. It's not like, it's not always crystal clear, you should be doing X amount, you know, for X amount of time in this way, but it's just kind of, um, implicit (laughs) so it's not always easy to spot yeah absolutely I absolutely agree with that I do a lot more of the informal ways of mindfulness practice than I do the formal seated meditations and I still remember it must have been about 15 years ago or so when I first got introduced to using kind of formal mindfulness practice and I got given a a, a book by uh, John Kabat-Zinn the full catastrophe living book I still have still have not opened it to this day (laughs) because it was given to my hand um, by a more senior therapist and I was training to be a psychologist at that point I might have been 20 years ago uh, 50, uh, something like that a long time ago and she said you must do one hour of the seated oh, meditation God. a day and that scared me off mindfulness yeah. for a long time and I, when I realized I could find my way into it by doing the, especially the um, the sensory experiences you're describing mm. of kind of engaging with things with our five senses that made it so much easier for me and connecting with my breath so especially for high striving busy people I, I do a lot more of that mm-hmm. because you can, you use, use the phrase there mindful moments it means that little and often can mm-hmm. count preparing a cup of tea where you're listening to the kettle boil watching the bubbles of the water feeling the the heat of the temperature in the rising in the cup as you're pouring it in all of that 
that might be a, a you know a moment of two minutes where you're doing something you would have done anyway or brushing your teeth ever so much slower than you would do and just autopilot um, quick rubbing. So I find that a lot more palatable as a way in for a lot of people who find themselves too busy to even do anything. Even my yoga teacher says this, that when she's finding herself in more difficult times, she doesn't roll the mat out. So when we need it the most, yes. we don't practice. I think that's quite a human thing that we just want to take the pressure off people with that. That's just so common that we do that stop and start practice. I do that as well. We're thinking that with good intentions that throughout this pandemic, I should, I should meditate more often. It will really help. And then it turns out that you have no urge to do so whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> Walks in the woods um, has been very helpful for me throughout the pandemic. So that's a really nice way of knowing how you can find some rest and recovery in a way that is a little bit more realistic and manageable. Are there any other ways you kind of give yourself that permission to pause or find rest and recovery that isn't to do with mindfulness? Yeah, definitely. Um, I (laughs) have long observed that I'm um, very achievement driven or I don't even know if that's the right way to put it, but I am so comfortable doing lots of things that not doing lots of things is hard for me to do and actually more uncomfortable. So I always have to be mindful, I think, of of that balance between pushing myself too hard and overdoing it where, you know, none of it then becomes a pleasure and I kind of lose focus and, yeah, (laughs) forget the meaning of life a bit. So I need variation, I think, in what I'm doing. And I, I think because I'm so often in doing mode, what I've tried to do, particularly in the pandemic, is get, you know, find things that can get me in that being mode. And prior to the pandemic, when we could socialize with people, that was very much, you know, seeing friends, because then I'd be solidly planted in the moment, enjoying that connection. And that that gave me my biggest reprieve of everything, just enjoyment. So I really miss that. And obviously, we're all on Zoom at the moment, and it's not quite the same So, I mean, I've been giving myself permission to (laughs) connect in different ways. I mean, going back to just phone calls (laughs) has been revolutionary. Yeah, old school. Yeah, rather than seeing faces. But also um, what I've been trying to do is things that actually have no achievement in them whatsoever. So, you know, reading fiction books uh, without having to comment on them or start a book club. Um, I was horse riding. Um, unfortunately the horse got sold so I can no longer loan her but I'm looking for another one but these were just things that really gave me a sense of pleasure and I found as well I've been connecting with things that gave me pleasure when I was younger even when I was a child so horse riding was one of those things reading and just doodling yeah things that kind of tap into kind of just creativity and uh, nature I think those areas really give me a sense of pleasure yeah yeah it's it's really interesting how closely connected pleasure and joy is that I guess kind of imagining you on on that horse being sort of in tune with the the horse's body as well it's not just connecting with your own body but another body as well and we're doing things like walking in nature that how how much we can take pleasure from things when we're also doing things that are enjoyable and feel meaningful so this is obviously why I call this podcast pause purpose play because I think that they all three of those categories are so closely interlinked that what you do for rest and recovery is also related to what you think is playful and fun and creative and that can also give us a sense of meaning and purpose and I think that's really really powerful because every single guest I've had on the, the show so far has has been someone who's been ambitious or driven or done purposeful things with their life and it's okay to have that ambition and, and kind of driven life as well, as long as we find times when we're also stepping out of it, like you're doing there, kind of going from the doing into the being. And I, I love that idea of noticing that even when we do something that could be just restful and, and fun, like reading a fiction book, if we have a tendency to be high striving, we might go, oh, must go and write a review about it, or <laughs> let's start a book club. And then suddenly there's pressure before that monthly uh, yes. meeting to have read it all and thought of clever um clever evaluations and questions so I'm I'm sure that people listening will recognize that sense of adding almost like an element of pressure to things that we're not pressurizing to begin with and I think that takes a lot of mindfulness in itself that actually it's not mindfulness it's not just what all those lovely things you described about the sensory experience but also noticing your tendencies ah I'm becoming mindful that maybe I want to have a book club here but I'm going to resist that urge and just read it because it's nice yeah. read it in the bath so we, I think we've all had a lot of those mindful experiences and you know rest and recovery things stripped away from the pandemic um I'm dying to go and sit in my friend's new um hot tub that she bought oh, for a garden yeah. 
and I can't go and sit in a hot tub. Um, so, so that's something I'm looking forward to when we're allowed to again. It's just simple measures, isn't it? Definitely. Is there anything else you would like to add that you do for pause, purpose or play that we haven't already covered? I was writing a lot of um, fiction. So I've been kind of contributing to a book that I started years and years ago. And I think actually that's Although there is an ultimate aim at some point to publish my fiction book, actually what's been nice in the same kind of way that we just discussed there of of taking that pressure off has just been only contributing to it when I'm feeling inspired. And it's such a nice kind of escapism. And I don't have any timeline for when I want to try and, you know, proceed and get a literary agent and all of that. I just enjoy writing it. But again, I think that that's been taken away because of the pandemic and we're so glued to our screens. But yeah, I think, yeah, just anything to do with escapism at the moment is key. <laughs> and I think that's that's where actually at the moment that can be healthy though, can't it? I mean, I was yeah. thinking about the kind of books that we read. I've been anecdotally hearing that people are reading um, sort of almost like teenage fiction books that they were reading yeah. when they were teenagers, um, returning back to watching all the episodes of Friends or things that we kind of feel like a comfort. Definitely. I certainly found myself listening to lots of 90s music. Um, you know, my husband and I kind of oh, put together yeah. a playlist planning that whenever we're allowed to, we can have a sort of a 90s party in the garden. And kind of that was a bit of a healthy escapism that isn't about numbing out or distracting yeah. yourself away, but actually thinking that, you know, there are ways where we can go to a safer place in our minds by remembering better times and, and planning forwards to better times. But that's really powerful to think about the writing and I hadn't clocked that until you said it that actually that's probably why I've not done any of my fiction writing for many years because mm. as long as I write for my own drawer rather than for anything else then it remains free of criticism and free of deadlines whereas mm. today is publication day for my own book yeah. which is a non-fiction book and that <laughs> felt very different to kind of churn out so yeah we, we must talk books um, at some other point definitely for sure so as we're wrapping things up, what would be sort of the one tangible takeaway you want to give to the listeners? And I always ask people to either kind of give a permission to the listeners or any pressure you want to take off them. I think at the moment, what's key is <laughs> taking off any expectation of how you should be doing things and performing in this pandemic. I think I've had so many people just assume that they should be doing more or doing something differently. And then, you know, when I've had the opportunity to explore with them exactly what's going on for them, you know, when, when you spell it out, it seems a nonsense that you would be expecting all of that much. But like I say, these are often kind of silent thoughts. We're not noticing them. So I think, you know, giving yourself permission to um, do less, expect less and um, perhaps even explore what you are expecting um, if, if it's going to be hard to, to do it blindly. I think that's really powerful and it's we might say consciously that I'm not expecting things to be mm -hmm. perfect or I'm not putting pressure on myself and then you stand there and look down on the banana bread and wondering why why did I yeah. do this to myself <laughs> so I think a lot of people have gone be way beyond that and feel like it's actually having a shower or a walk outside every day is is actually way too strenuous so they've let go of all of those things a long mm. time ago but there are people who are still still thinking that I should be using this time in some sort of quote-unquote productive way where we obviously know that when we've been having this adrenaline response for this long productivity is going to be influenced yeah. by that we would have memory impact you know I hear lots of people making mistakes and putting yeah. their keys in the fridge or whatever oh, that's just a sign of our body saying no so you and I have talked about that quite a lot today of how the body signals us that, that there is a time to stop about these things mm -hmm. we've touched upon headaches we talked about you know, your, your gut giving you a sign that maybe slow down for a bit. So we're hoping that this is something that people can understand that the physical signs of overwhelm are really important, but we can also get ahead of that by creating a lifestyle that isn't always riding on you being on the brink of burnout and then slowing down. So that's obviously one of the things both you and I are passionate about, finding more pleasure, finding more rest and recovery. So I will be talking about that a little bit more in the outro, but I'm very pleased to, to say that you're going to be doing some work for us in the yes. Thomas Connection as well. So anyone who's been listening to this thinking, I need to get a piece of this fantastic lady, Sula, then you can just drop us a line and uh, we can get that sorted. So I'm very, very excited that we get to add your expertise in health psychology to our, to our bow, so to speak. So thank you so much for talking to me about all of these 
exciting things and you're giving me more questions than I had beforehand, <laughs> which I think is always a good thing when you have a thirst for knowledge. So thank you so much for coming on with the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, dear listeners, for staying with us to the end of this. I know that there might have been parts that were a little bit technical about different health conditions, but that just gives us an insight into the level of expertise that Sula has and how there is so much to learn about the body that us normal psychologists who don't cross over into health psychology, we have so much left to learn there. And you heard me getting even more questions at the end than I had in the beginning. So I think this is what we sometimes call functional medicine where there's a crossover between mental health and all the awareness we have about medicine and the body. So Sula balances that act between the mind and the body beautifully. And I especially liked how she has such a realistic take on mindfulness, that there cannot be another pressure, another to-do list kind of task to tick off. So I hope that you stay till this very end. And if you do want to work with Sula, she's a lovely person and you can hear the extent of her expertise has not fully been covered on this podcast because she knows a lot more other conditions that we haven't had a chance to cover. So if you want to work with Sula, you can just drop us an email on info at thethomasconnection.co.uk or just go to the website, thethomasconnection.co.uk and reach out and I will arrange you to have a chat with Sula. And until next time, do please take care of yourself. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do. If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's going to help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm so that's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm this episode of the pause purpose play podcast was presented by me Michaela Thomas and you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk and because great work rests on having a great team This episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.